0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. Kate Silverton has been a journalist for 25 years and you will definitely know of her because she is one of the BBC's leading and most popular broadcasters She spent decades interviewing leading figures throughout the world, from politicians through to celebrities and scientists. But what you might not know about Kate is that throughout it all, her lifelong passion has been to advocate for children and their emotional well-being. She has a BSc in psychology and is now retraining as a child psychotherapist. She's also volunteering at the moment as a counsellor on placement with children at a London primary school. Kate's counseling work, her own personal experience of psychotherapy and the interviews she's conducted with world renowned psychiatrists, neuroscientists and psychotherapists have all informed her approach in this concept that she's devised for her new book. Again, you've probably seen it because it's been a Sunday Times bestseller. It's been an absolute hit called There is No Such Thing as Naughty. And her philosophy is, which is all rooted in neuroscience is that if we get it right from conception to five, we can set our children up for life. As you can imagine, Kate and I had a wonderful chat because we have this absolute shared passion of fostering emotional health in our children and ourselves and how that is the most important thing. I say this so often because I'm so passionate about it. Just like Kate, you know, everything that I've learned, there is nothing more important than emotional health. And we know that now from so many studies, which Kate and I talk about in the episode. So I hope you really enjoy it. If you did, please do let us know. Kate shared how much joy she's getting from hearing from people about the concepts that she's talking about. So please do let us know what you thought of the episode. Here it is. Kate, welcome to the podcast. We were just sharing before we started. I love the book. It's so brilliant. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And as I was reading it, I was kind of high-fiving because you've got some of my absolute favourite people in the world, Gabor Marte, Sue Gerhardt, these real leaders in their field but you've distilled them in such an accessible way so firstly congratulations and thank you for writing the book.
1: Thank you very much and thank you for having me on and it's just such a joy to hear your feedback on it too so thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to read it. Where did your passion come from, from zero to five? Well the passion really is just in children. And my academic background is in child psychology. So that was my degree. And when I had children, we'd spent a a long five years of trying to conceive and it hadn't happened. And I think I'd sort of taken a step back, but I'd always had a link with all the children's mental health charities. And it sort of happened by happy accident, really. I was volunteering quite a lot with charities like Place to Be and the Anna Freud Centre. And then when I felt pregnant. The world changes as it does. And I was given these two amazing miracles. And with all my background in sort of child psychology and understanding psychotherapy, I was asking questions of the scientists, the neuroscientists, the psychiatrists that I was working with, and the families that they were helping. And I thought, wow, this is so relevant for me. And I guess the book really is my own experiences told through the prism of all the questions that I was asking quite naturally of all these great people, as you say, sort of the Gable Matés, the Bruce Perrys and people, Margot Sunderland. And actually I picked Margot's book, which I've got on my bookshelf just here. So Margot's book, The Science of Parenting. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. There's so much that I didn't know. And the more I was learning and implementing in my own parenting And finding it so much easier. And I just thought, this is a revelation. And, you know, there's this passion, obviously, as a journalist, to communicate stories and to to distill very complex information down to a mass audience. And so that was what was in my head. And Professor Peter Fonagy, who's one of the sort of gods of children's mental health in the UK, we were having a meeting about something else entirely about trauma in childhood and so on and the big trauma council that he was helping to establish and we were talking and he pointed his finger at me and he said Kate we're dealing in our field with all the really acute ends of children's mental health you pointing at me you have a duty to get this knowledge to a wide audience from that perspective of supporting parents and Then came lockdown and that's when it all happened. And very long answer to your question, but why the nought to five or rather conception to five is because that is, as you and I will both be aware, is really when our children's brains are developing at the most rapid rate. And it's crucial that as a society, we understand that because we can help create a very healthy architecture i liken it to sort of building a house when we put the foundations in and they're firm then when adversity comes our way our children's way later in life they've got these really firm foundations for future mental health so that was the aim of the book is to help support parents to parent a healthy brain and to really enable that architecture which will ensure their future mental health and i say that categorically that's what the nspcc have said about the book the anna freud center and this is what we're trying to do is to ensure our children's future mental health as well as having an easier time of it when parenting
0: and we know that now you know we know impact of zero to five I mean zero to two actually the brain doubles doesn't it first year second year and womb life and it's no surprise to me my most popular episode ever to date might be your one after today is with Gabo Marte and the title of that episode is why our childhood shapes everything in our lives and I'm not surprised that's my most popular ever because I think as parents it brings up that natural reflection on what happened to me zero to five And how am I unpacking that? What's the impact on me, my acute stress response, how I am in my relationships? And therefore, how do I want to do it differently when my own children are zero to five? Did that come into play with you? What were your kind of early years like? does this passion come from a desire to want to repair or do something differently than your own experience? Or was it because it was so great and you feel passionate? For that?
1: <laughs> well, I'm quite careful about talking about my own childhood. Just spare my mum, bless her. But I think in all of us, we all have challenge and adversity in our own childhoods. And so my parents were fantastic and my mum is fantastic. I think that we can learn. I've had psychotherapy. So I guess that we do unpack a lot in that. And from that understanding came this passion to sort of say, I think that message of we can repair. So even the little things and my dad, and before he passed, I did have a conversation with him so I can share this, I think, but, you know, he came from that generation where if you showed any sort of emotion there, oh, there she goes again with the waterworks And then I would run to my room and swallow down those emotions and I'd sit there. I did say to him, and he was really shocked and upset actually when I said, Dad, do you know when you used to say that to me? Well, bloody hell, it wasn't great. And so I guess that is a good example of where we'd all be sat around the dinner table and something might come up, and I had tears in my eyes. And him, you know, came from a generation of that kind of waterworks, crybaby, drama queen, and I still hear that language today. And I guess if you were to ask me, let's hone in on that, because now we know that if we are forced, as Gabor would say, if we are forced to sit with those big emotions, we repress them, and i.e. that leads to depression. And so it's understanding that, not from a blaming, the book is not about blaming, shaming or anything, because I understand it. I understand my dad was a really decent, beautiful, kind dad. He got some stuff wrong, and we all get stuff wrong so me i still get stuff so it's understanding and being open and curious to where we can help our children and understand the science because then we can hand on heart say actually there's no such thing as a naughty child or a drama queen these are just emotions and the biggest thing we can do for our children as alan shaw would say is help them to regulate their emotions. Under five, that's the biggest gift we can give our children. So that's the central message. And I guess, yeah, maybe that did come from that dinner table experience, perhaps. I think it's knowledge, isn't it? I think the moment
0: that I learn all of these things, much like you describe in the book, you know, you can't help but then look differently at a child's experience. And previous generations like you, you know, I have so much amazing compassion and actually respect for my parents the knowledge just wasn't out there like it is today you know there weren't books like yours there weren't podcasts like mine so I think everyone was just doing what had been done to them so let's talk then about brain development in zero to five because you describe it so brilliantly in the book using these animals tell us about the survival brain the emotional brain the thinking brain and the animals you've attached them to and why it's important as parents that we understand that
1: well I started with reading Bruce Perry and Margot Sunderland's book so they really informed me so my understanding then became so let's start with our survival brain which is what I call the lizard brain because it's the same brain as a lizard has had for millions of years it's that very instinctive behavior so Basically, the lizard brain is what really drives our babies in the womb and pretty much the first year of life. So I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm in pain. It regulates sleep, our balance. It's a very, very fundamental part of our brain. And it's involved in the fight, flight, freeze response as I was writing I was thinking right well if I think of a lizard you know puffing himself up to scare off the snake you can YouTube some of these as I did when I was writing it to just see if it all married up the lizard might flip on its back and freeze or it might run away as we know so it helped me to understand that very ancient part of our brain by understanding it as a lizard and the the lizard doesn't have really much control over what it does it just acts on instinct It's that unconscious thought. And I thought, gosh, that really helps us. When we look at a baby... And you hear, oh, that baby's trying to manipulate you. Well, the baby's being driven by a lizard, right? And that lizard doesn't have time. It doesn't sit there rubbing its little paws together going, right, I'm going to manipulate mum and dad because I know it's going to really pee them off if I cry in the night. The lizard is all about survival. That means that when a baby is communicating, if we can think of it being driven by this very primitive survival brain, I was hoping that we might be able to see our babies differently and think there's no manipulation going on you're telling me something. I might not understand it at 3am in the morning, but if I can think of it as in, you have a need right now, and it's only going to be one of the very few things, you know, I'm cold, I'm in discomfort, I'm hungry, thirsty, whatever. So It was really trying to help us to understand that the brain at that point, you know, when we're in the womb and the first year of life is really driven by a survival instinct. And then we move to the limbic system, which I sort of always look at as a middle part of the brain. And to me, that's the emotional part of the brain. So the sort of the fear, the rage, the really big emotions, the joy, language is in there as well and memory. And I looked at my little boy, you know, almost beating his chest with anger when his sister knocked down the Lego tower that he'd just built. Or it's all those really big emotions and it's all attachment. And, you know, can I trust the caregivers around me? Another very important part of the brain. But I liken it to a baboon because I think then we can see that in our little children. It's the same brain that my puppy's got and it's very survival driven. So again, if my toddler snatches a piece of cake from somebody it's sort of driven by this food i must have it i'm in survival mode there's no niceties the p's and q's that we expect as adults so again we can look at our children's behavior and look at them going gosh there's some really big emotions going on but you're telling me through your body what you're experiencing. And it's that that really that are driving our children's behavior in the first five years of life, the lizard and the baboon. So that sort of reptilian, the survival brain and the limbic system. And I think of these animals in a baobab tree because for me, the baobab tree is the brain. The roots go down into the body and that's where all the communication flows back and forth you know because we are all as one it doesn't just all sit in the brain it's a constant communication between our bodies and our minds as Gabor would say so they're sitting in the bareback tree the lizards at the bottom of the bark the baboons on the first branch and then high up in the canopy is our wise owl And she sits there and she's got the perspective, the big picture perspective about life. So she can look out from the tree. And if the baboon is jumping up and down on his branch, because he thinks that there's a predator coming near. So he's jumping up and down and pressing what is the amygdala in the brain, the fear center of the brain. And he's going, oh my gosh, there's a predator. And she goes, oh no, it's just my friend, the fox coming or whatever. So she's the one that really regulates all the big emotions in in our brains. And she's problem solved. She has empathy. She thinks about the future and the past. And the big light bulb moment for me was to understand that because our children's brains are still forming, they're still developing after they sort of come out of the womb, and they have more of a fluffy outlet. Than a wise owl. It's still not yet got the ability to swoop down and scoop the lizard and the baboon up with her lovely big wings and say, It's okay, guys, I've got you. It's all all right. I know it's in the middle of the night and there's a noise outside, but it's okay. It's just a fox knocking over the dustbin. That's what happens in our brains as adults. But our children don't have that. They have what I think of as a little fluffy owlet who can't quite fly yet. So she can't fly down to the rest of the branches and scoop and soothe the other animals. And so I wanted parents to understand that we have that perspective when our children are anxious about going to school we might think oh it's not that big a deal that they got told off by the teacher yesterday but to them it's really quite scary and they don't want to go through that so they're not going to want to go to school and that's the boon they go oh i don't want to go to school so it's our job to soothe and nurture and help grow that little fluffy owlet until she becomes an all-knowing wise owl i don't think that's made sense i always kind of think if when i'm explaining it but that to me just made sense in a way of if we're going to help our children and have this emotional regulation we need to build and nurture this wise owl growth which is the prefrontal cortex and the cortical thinking that we really need as adults if we're not going to fly off the handle every other second when we're stressed it makes perfect sense and i think you know,
0: when I came to learn this, and you underscore it beautifully in the book, is that basically, from zero to five, children are a big ball of reactive emotion, essentially, because they're not regulating that, which is the wise owl, as you would say. Therefore, all behavior is communication. They're not going to sit down and say, like, I might to you, just as we were starting, you know, I feel really overwhelmed right now. A child isn't going to say that. They're going to refuse to put their shoes on or hit their sister And I think what is so powerful is, and you talk about, and maybe we go into it now, is what happens when we punish those feelings instead of holding those feelings. Can you talk to that?
1: I give good examples in the book because, of course, it catches us out sometimes. It's not always immediately obvious what's going on for our children. So in the first chapter, as you say, and I talk about the stress response, which we should come to because that's that whole body experience that when our children are anxious, it's a whole body experience. It's not just felt in the brain. You know, what goes on in the brain doesn't stay in the brain, as I put it. So I'd love to talk about the stress response, because I think that really helps, especially the blokes, dare I say, they kind of go, oh, right, there's a physiological thing going on. I can get my head around that. It's not just some nammy pammy theory that you're going on about, Kate. You know, my husband's military. We had a friend of his over the other night. He's a sort of a former firefighter and military man. And he's like, I really understood that bit. And I'm like, great. Okay. Anyway, let's put that aside for the minute. So as an example, my son at the age of four was going off to school, so you know, new school and all the rest of it because he'd just gone up into big school. So there's obviously anxiety going on, but I'd bought him some lovely brand new white polo shirts and they were in a pack of four. And the first day he wore the first one and he went off happily. And then the next morning I had to get to work. I had a 905 train to catch. And obviously I'm trying to get everybody ready for school. And he just started wailing. When I got the next white top out for him to wear, He's, I'm not wearing that today. I'm not wearing that. I'm not wearing that. And it was this insistent. And because I'm already stressed and my baboon, as I put it, is already up and out because the baboon is all the stress response in our brain. And my baboon, I can feel, is starting to sort of rise up going, what? What do you mean you're not wearing this white shirt? Put it on, otherwise we're going to be late for school. And then you go into battle and his baboon and lizard are then doing backflips for whatever reason, which we'll get to. But we're then going into battle. He's saying, I'll wear that one, pointing to a blue T-shirt, but I won't wear that one. And then it goes back and forth. I'm then stressed because I know I'm going to miss my train. I'm then going to miss my editorial at work. I'm then going to be in the bad book. So there's all that chain reaction for me going on. And he's sitting on the stairs, crying his little heart out, red face, tears streaming. I'm then thinking, oh my God, what are the neighbors thinking? This is horrific. Then my daughter starts crying because she thinks she's going to be late. And it's ah. And in that moment of overwhelm, because I've been. Given the gift of having spoken to all these incredible people, the experts that I refer to throughout the book, I then go, hang on a minute. Okay, just take a step back. This is not good. You don't want to be the big baboon looming over your child, screaming at him while he's crying. That is not a good look. It's not doing you any good. This is not good. Take a step back. (sighs) Have a breath. Okay, something is going on for my son right now that I need to help him with. So let's just see. Then I ask the question sweetheart, what is it you don't like about the shirt? And he then he looks up at me and he says, I had PE yesterday and I tried to pull it off my top of my head and it got stuck and I couldn't breathe. And in that moment, I'm like, oh, my poor baby. He was stuck at school, that horrible thing when you've got something stuck over your head and your arms are stuck and you can't get it off. How traumatic with a small T, but you know, how traumatic for a little boy who can't ask for help and he's stuck there. And what's going on in his brain is that that little lizard and the baboon who are all about survival, but the lizard particularly can't breathe. This becomes a threat. This white shirt is awful. It's tight, it can't come off. And I never want to go through that experience again. Why would my son ever want to put that white shirt on? This is not about a naughty child who's being spoiled. It's about a little boy who's had a very challenging experience with this top He's telling me he wants to get dressed. He's not got a problem with getting dressed. He just doesn't want to wear the white shirt. When we can ask the right questions of our children, what can I do? How can I help? You know, what is it that you don't like about this? What do you need from me right now? All these questions. Allow them to tell us in slow time what's going on. And I guarantee every single time there will be something going on for our children that might be way off our radar. It might be that they got hit that morning at nursery and they come home and they're acting out. You might think it's about the chocolate that being spoilt because they're insisting on chocolate. Actually, it's not. It's just a way of throwing it all out there and asking to be understood as we would. If we have a difficult day at work and we come home and if someone just wasn't really listening to us, it might come out in something irritable and might say something. This is all behaviour. So That example of my son, I could then sit by him, put my arm around and say, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. Let's see if we can find another white top that's a bit bigger. And let's see if I can ask the teacher to help you if you have to get changed next time. And he stands up, tears stop, and they look of gratitude on our children's faces when we have that communication. And it's wonderful because I'm getting all this feedback from parents right now on Instagram just saying oh my gosh it's just completely revolutionized there's no more meltdowns in the morning because we're asking the questions and our children are telling us what's wrong and it ain't about the shoes or the top or the whatever it's about something that's happened to upset them and they've been carrying all this stress and now we can sit on the soothing stair and we can help them regulate again oh it's magic and that is what is fueling me right now it's heaven but as I say, I've seen it and I weave it in throughout the book from my own personal experience because it's not always obvious what's going on. But when we can stop and remember it's not personal, stop snot as I call it in the book, it's not personal. Okay, then my baboon can stand down and my wise owl can come in and say, okay, everybody, what's going on? Let's try and get a resolution to this. It's so powerful. And I think It just
0: really works. Like through the podcast, like you, I've had the privilege of speaking to these experts since Jessie was one. I started it and she's my five-year-old now and it just works. And also, actually, I don't always have to figure out what it is, even just validating. And you talk about this using the word, you know, so she'll say, my legs are tired. You know, and in my head, I'm like, for God's sake, I haven't got the buggy board. You know, like you, I've got to get there and say, I can hear that your legs feel really tired. Was that because you did pee today? And even just saying that, she'll kind of go, Yeah. And I'll say, Come on, let's go. And she'll come off with me. Yeah. And it's the same with us as adults, isn't it? If I said something to you, I'm feeling tired and you just brushed me off and ignored me, our connection would break very quickly. And I think when we do that to our children totally unconsciously over years and times, it's that connection that can break. And then we call it acting out. Yeah. The thing that I want to touch on that's so important in all of this is how you were able in that brilliant example to let go of your stress of being late. There's one thing knowing this stuff. And then there's another thing, particularly as a, you know, a solo parent or a parent with health problems or a child with health problems how you're able to put the rest of the world on pause, even for five minutes, which is probably all it took you, with the t-shirt to regulate yourself and to think this is more important right now than making that editorial meeting.
1: So there's two answers to that. One is the self-regulation, which I talk about that when we are on overwhelm, as you say, solo parenting, lack of sleep, pressure from work. So we'll set that aside because that's the sort of self-regulation. What if we are tired and we have to get to work? What I would say is when you do it once, just once, and so for any parent that's listening and thinking I might find that too hard, well, I'm going to say, let me set you a challenge. Do it once, see how quickly it works, how effectively it works, as you've just said, And then that is almost like there's a muscle memory then because it will happen again and again because our children will be overwhelmed. But once you've done it once and you see how easy and quick it is, then that is enough sometimes of a reminder. And I still get caught. You know, it happened the other day, but the sort of the period of my children having a bit of, you know, my daughter's nine and she's got hormonal stuff going on at the moment and something had happened with her dad because I'd laid those foundations over and over and over again. And she brushed past me. She said, no, no, I'm going to my room. And I said, sweetheart, you know, mummy wants to help and I can help. You know that. And it literally took a beat. And then she turned around and came and sat down by me. And I said, the mango was a bit hard. I mean, I know that's a ridiculous thing, you know, whatever. And she said, yes. And then I said, oh, sweetheart, that's so tough, isn't it? And then she starts laughing because we both really, you know, she's nine now. She's looking at me knowing that, you know, it's kind of, I'm having empathy, but we also know it's a bit of a ridiculous stomping. And then she goes, yes, it is. And then she starts laughing and then she starts eating the mango again. And it takes about two seconds. So what I will say categorically is, One is just do it once because when you've done it once, you see how magical it is. You think, wow, how did that happen? And then it becomes easier to do it because that way is actually far easier than battling. And when we can have that beat, as I say, try it once, and that's going to take maybe a lot more in that moment to kind of go, oh, quick, Kate, regulate, regulate, I've got to do it. But once you've done it, it sits there going, hang on a moment, Uh, yeah, he's crying, he's off the scale, but yeah, what did I do last time? I took a breath. Okay. I'm going to take a breath and just say, how can I help you? Keep it really simple. Don't make it overcomplicated. Sit on the stair together and just sometimes just saying, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Or just acknowledging, reflecting back. I can see you're really upset right now is enough. And the bond that you have just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So those moments are fewer and further between. So it does take a little bit, but I would say only takes once for that light bulb to go on and go, oh my God, this works. Yeah.
0: When I was reading your book, actually, I was thinking about Jessie, we're moving house at the moment. You know, there's a lot going on and she's changing school. And every day when I'm picking her up from school, she is having a monumental meltdown in front of all the other parents about the snack, right? Whatever snack I bring. And the first two times, like last week or a couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, for God's sake. And then I realized, I was like, this has nothing to do with the snack. She's stressed about school. She's stressed about moving school. And she sees me, because I've built those foundations just because of, you know, the work that I've been privileged to be doing. She sees me as safe outlet for the stress of the school day. And I think that simple reframe, just as you say, enables my stress response to calm as opposed to like oh it's just a snack and i you're lucky i bought you a snack and all that kind of dialogue to just think actually she sees me as a really safe place to let her emotions out and i think learning that was such a game changer for me because i started to see tantrums as we won't call them but you know that acting out behavior is almost like a privilege and almost a sign of how safe my children must feel with me to act out their feelings because we know as adults we don't show our feelings to people we don't feel safe, and this is the gabble work. Of course, you mentioned it when we push them down and we do the good little girl act. Most psychotherapists would say that is more worrying than children who are acting it all out,
1: right? Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? That in the wild nursery incident in the book, it's exactly the same it's about the snack, but it's not about the snack, it's about something's been going on. I was- chairing an event recently and a mum typed in a question and she said exactly that she said have I done something wrong which is obviously that all we always go to that place of guilt that we've done something wrong she said my son is beautifully behaved with everybody everybody she said he gets back home and it's horrendous and I smiled and I said absolutely not. I said, in fact, it tells me that you've done everything right because he sees you as safe enough, exactly as you've just said, he sees you as safe enough to unload all those big feelings. And in that moment, instead of punishing, we bring our children to us and help them. My goodness, what a wonderful bonding experience that is. And our children are forevermore going to know that they can come to us to help with their pain, even when Whatever's happened, that they know that they can come to us, and I think that's the most powerful thing. So it's lovely, lovely to hear you say that as well.
0: Bessel van der Kolk, which is the book which most my listeners will be familiar with, which is The Body Keeps Score, says that being able to feel safe with others is the most important predeterminant for mental health. Yeah, isn't that just profound? You know that we're spending so much time and money in this country and globally. You know, with this growing mental health crisis and I'm deeply passionate, I know you are too, you know, if we can really allow our children at brain development age to bring their big feelings, it's game-changing, but it sounds simple to say it, right? But you and I know that and everyone listening knows there's
1: so much to it. I've had sort of the feedback from parents, and then I've had psychiatrists, neuroscientists, psychologists, social workers all saying, thank you. And I'm sure they say the same to you. Thank you for doing what you do, because the narrative has been in the past very different. And I still, dare I say, in schools and beyond, there's still an element of this sort of narrative. You know, actually, we hear it in our politicians, you know, put behavior rooms. And if a child is acting out, it means that, you know, after the pandemic, that, you know, children are being naughty. Well, Let's just reframe that. Our children are not naughty. They just have needs. And see a child differently, see a different child. So there's still a lot of work to do, but to be able to convey it in the way that we're doing and for then. I just want a grassroots revolution of parents because I think once parents get it and they can say, well, actually, no, there's not anything wrong with my child. There's nothing wrong with me. This is natural and I can help my children. Then suddenly we have a wonderful revolution, an organic revolution of parents who say, you're not going to say my child's naughty. Let's try and understand what they're telling us. Things can change on that. And I think that is the hope because we talk about mental health and future mental health and adult mental health. Well, Hey, guess what? It starts in these early years. If we get this right, and it is so easy to get right, as we've just been saying, you know, with emotional regulation, then we solve a lot of the problems that are presenting themselves. It's not hard to do. It just needs a little bit of curiosity and bravery sometimes for us all to kind of look and think, right, maybe there is another way of doing it.
0: And it's not just mental health. You know, I think there's a growing body of work that you allude to in the book actually around maybe this is the time to talk about the stress response and this is the body of Gabor's work we've mentioned a few times and others That really it's physical health as well is often all predetermined and there's some amazing cutting-edge papers coming out at the moment on this is also all predetermined from conception to five your physical health which is just mind-blowing
1: all due to the stress response. And when we understand the stress response, you kind of go, oh my God, of course that makes sense. So if we think of it in the book, and I explain sort of that you've got the baboon sitting on his branch and if he's scared, so I use the example of me being at home, which is true. I was at home. My husband was in South Africa, heard a noise outside. I freak out. I'm literally on the phone to him saying, there's somebody trying to get in. And my husband did joke and say, Kate, I actually fear for them more than you. If somebody got in, (laughs) which made me laugh and was the right thing to do because it cut through my own stress response. But I was looking back at that time thinking, right, I was literally at that moment, my baboon was doing backflips and my lizard going oh my gosh there's somebody outside they're going to get in i've got the children upstairs i'm home alone it's dark so everyone's on high alert and i explain in the book that the baboon then runs along the branch and he hits this sort of button in the bark of the tree which is actually our amygdala and that then sends a cascade of anxiety chemicals right the way down to our adrenal and it's this whole big what i call the stress response just to keep it simple And that is a whole body response. And I liken it to sort of like a fire being put through the body. And it's only when the wise owl can fly down and with her beak press a green button in the bark, which then, and this is me imagining it clearly, it's metaphorical, setting a sprinkler system off that then puts the fire out. But if we don't then get rid of that all of that, and allow ourselves to cry or to shake it out or whatever the physical response, then that water can become what I think of as stagnant. And that is what is toxic. So toxic stress is the stress response being triggered over and over and over. In short bursts, the stress response, as you will know, is really good it enables us to grab our children out of the way of a runaway car or to run away from a burning building. Our stress response gets us through the day. And it will come out in bursts and then it dissipates and it's all good. It's designed to keep us alive. However, if it's triggered over and over and over and over, if a child is put into a scary situation, and sometimes that can be for little children at nursery if they're not soothed because they can't really regulate properly. So we have to be very aware of that with our children because if that stress sits in the body, It's unhealthy, very unhealthy if we have it constantly over and over again. So what you and I are talking about with a snack, our children will have been sitting with some form of stress and it might be another child coming at them with a raised fist. It might be a teacher telling them off. It might be the worry about moving, going to a different school. It sits there. And actually, isn't it wonderful that then it can come out in this big demonstrative way? Because Peter Levine's work explains how we need to kind of get the stress out. So as adults, we need to go for a run. We need to do stuff to get it out. Well, our children do as well. And that's that big explosion, that big tantrum or whatever we would call it, you know, the big acting out. That's good. That's the body's way, the baboon's natural way of getting it all out. So that's really good. We should see it as good. That's stress leaving the body. And we want that for our children safely expressed. So that's the next thing is how we help our children express how they're feeling safely. And that's where boundaries come in. And the next few chapters address that.
0: Yeah, because this isn't about behave how you want and there's no boundaries. In fact, it's almost like the opposite is that we are the container for those big feelings And within that comes the boundaries. So if we're not using naughty steps, which is, I think, pretty clear why that's not a good idea. And in the episode with Gabor, actually, he does a whole big spiel on the danger of naughty step and crying it out and shutting children in their room because we know they can't regulate on their own. Essentially, we leave them with that stagnant water, as you just described. What do we do when our children, I've got a little 18-month-old and a five-year-old and my five-year-old punches my 18-month-old? What do we do? What do you do? What does it say in the book could situations like that?
1: Okay. So we have a whole big chapter. In fact, the biggest chapter is on siblings and sibling rivalry. When I talk about how that stems from fear, essentially. So you've got all these big emotions. So we look at emotions And fear is one of the biggest drivers. Again, it all comes back to survival, that your little five-year-old is going to be looking the same as when clemency was looking and thinking, well, who's this imposter? Because for our children, it's not actually, you know, as much as we can prepare them. It doesn't actually prepare them for the tumultuous change that happens in a house. And if I'm working from a survival, you know, if we've got young children with a small age gap, they're going to be looking and going, well, hang on a moment. So if a saber-toothed tiger comes running into the house right now, because, of course, their brains are thousands of years old, so they don't sort of just live in 2021, you know, they're ages old. It's all driven by survival. So who's mum going to pick up and save first? Who's she going to rescue first? She keeps holding you, this thing that's come in, and doing all this stuff with you, and you keep crying as she comes to you. Well, that looks jolly dangerous to me because maybe she's going to grab you first and it's all unconsciousness it's all driven by that ancient brain but there's all these assumptions that are made you know our children will see their siblings as a threat so I talk about that in length so then we can start understanding the behavior and then we don't think oh my gosh I'm raising a, a really horrid child you know who hits their sibling there's a reason behind it so with that taking an example from Wilbur had gone through a sort of a hitty stage with clemency in frustration what I would do and I checked it with my I'm training now as I am a counsellor on placement in primary school and I checked with my supervisor and just said with my son we talk about pillow power so first of all it's not acceptable to hit so we have contracts in the house so we explain first of all is validating that there is something going on so I don't know when the hitting occurred in your household what had gone on but you know it's I can see you are very cross right now or whatever it might be you know it might be that baby's knocked over the lego tower or something I can see how cross you are it's very frustrating I'll take my example it speaks personally but you know but I can see how cross you are that clemency has just knocked over the lego tower I can see how annoying that must be and he's looking at me going okay she seems to understand me and then the boundary comes in but sweetheart it's not acceptable to hit I can see your cross, but we don't hit. We don't hit in this household. And then he's looking at me thinking, well, what else can I do? Because actually I can't use my words in that moment because I'm really angry. So I said to my son, if you're really, really cross and you can't use your words, because he was very young, what else could you do? And we had a pillow near us. And he actually looked at it and said, I could hit the pillow. So he wanted to get that stress out, that anger, that crossness. I said, okay, let's try that. And I held the pillow up. And then we had a good, is that all you've got? Come on, give it another go, you know, I'm pummeling. The, and we got to the point where obviously what we want is for him to use his words to say, I'm really cross that you've just done that or come and ask me for help. But in that sort of training, in those sort of gap between hitting his sister and being able to come to me to ask for help, if I can give him another outlet that's safe, I'm teaching him boundaries in that. It's soft. You can't hit your sister. You can't hit another person. We don't do that in this house. You can hit the pillow if you're frustrated. You do it with mummy. Mummy's around so that I'm helping you to regulate, to bring you back down. But you are not going to hit your sister. That is not acceptable. So all these things, we can paint, we can all get really silly, but we don't paint on the walls. So we set the boundaries before we start anything so that children understand. So when I'm counselling in a primary school, I always start with a contract and we establish where we feel safe that there's confidentiality that we're not to hurt each other in the room that we're not to throw things that we tidy things away when you establish the house rules as it were and even when your children are really young you can do this because you know you can kind of just make it age appropriate but then everyone knows where they are and they know that they don't put their handprint on the wall but they can put their red painted handprint on a piece of paper and that way it enables us to sort of take a step back so if things do happen, we can step in instead of shouting, oh my God, you put your hand on the wall. It's like, sweetheart, you know that we don't do that. Shall we tidy it up together? But you really know that we don't do that. That behavior will lessen because our children want to please us. If they are acting out, then we need to get underneath it. But if it's just that suddenly the wall looked really too good to be true and I'm going to put my hand on it, We don't need to punish in those moments. We can explain that it's not acceptable, that we don't want to do it again. I guarantee our children want to please us. They want to work with us. So if we get that line of communication, if they trust us, I don't have handprints on my walls, not because I'm some magic parent, but I've worked and explained that we can do it on the paper, just not on the walls. So, you know, I don't know if that's a long answer to your question, but it's putting these incremental steps in. You know, there's no hitting in the house. We have that on the contract. We understand why the hitting has taken place. We empathise with it because actually there's a bit of sibling rivalry going on. It might mean that your daughter needs a little bit more mummy time because she's feeling a little bit jealous of your 18-month-old. So it's all of that that's going on. If we can try and unpick it, the behaviour will just disappear. We don't need to be punishing it out of them. It will go. That's
0: been my experience. And actually, Jessie now, I don't know what your experience is, Jessie's five now, and she will say... I feel really angry, and I'm like, oh my god! Every time she does it, I'm like, it works, it works. I'm like, oh my god, she's labelling a feeling. I feel really angry. I'm like, that is amazing. At five, you know, obviously she's still acting those feelings out a lot too, but she's putting words to them, and that makes me feel like it's like those little wins, isn't it?
1: What does she do to get the anger out?
0: Yeah, I'll say, what do you need? And she'll be like, I. Sometimes she'll say, I need you to make sure Rose doesn't touch my things again. And I'll say, okay, well, let's put them up high if it's a game. She does these really intricate games, Jesse. I mean, it's in a whole world. And I get it. If someone moves them to her, it's like the world is over. So I'll sometimes meet that need, depending on what it is. But normally, she can express, actually. It's amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I wanted to touch on phones and screens because I know that's something. I'm sure you've been asked about it a lot Tell me about what your research discovered about us as parents using phones and as children using phones and screens.
1: Well, I think the most profound experiment for me that I read about was the still face experiment, which has been replicated many, many times. Yes. And when I thought about it, so in essence, I don't know if you've spoken about it before, but if a baby is it's quite a devastating experiment, really, and I don't know how often they do it now, but you would have a baby with the parent, and they're burbling away, and the parent's responding, and everybody's happy, and then the parent is instructed to just literally sit with a still face, no expression. And it becomes very distressing for the baby. And they try everything. They bang in their fist to try and get mummy or daddy's attention. And they get very upset. And they show that actually it's overwhelming for the central nervous system when this happens because the baby can't work out why mummy or daddy has just stopped responding. Clearly in the experiment, then it goes back to mummy and daddy responding. But, you know, for those moments, it's very upsetting. You can see videos of it online. Now, if I just sit with you now as we're talking and I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah, so, so I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to just do this here. Immediately, your brain's going to go, hang on a moment. Jeez, like will you stop? Stop, stop doing that. Like you stop ignoring me. This is what our children are seeing quite a lot. We're walking in our pram, the baby's in the pram and they see mum doing this. This is no blame because I understand it. We're all addicted to these. They're designed to be. But when we're aware that A, in holding this up, with our little ones we are reducing the number of experiences that they're having with us you know our faces the best toy for learning that a baby looking up from the pram at mum or dad's face and all the lovely sort of nuances am i happy am i surprised am i oh that was a bit of a loud noise all of that is beautiful rich material for that developing brain lots of neural connections are made in that moment if i'm doing that my baby's missing out on all that lovely sort of engagement And it's the same for our children. If we are on our phones and our children are trying to get our attention and we're ignoring them, what's the message that they're getting? That this is more important than them. And again, that actually evokes those feelings of shame. I'm obviously not enough. There's something wrong with me because I can only come to that conclusion because our children with their little baboon brains, they don't have that wise out to kind of go, oh, mummy just got a very important email from work and her boss has just emailed and she needs to reply. They just go, Mum doesn't think I'm important enough. She's obviously looking at this thing. They don't really get the concept of phones at a very young age. They don't have a concept of time at a very young age. So it's understanding that then we can make our own decisions around what is and isn't appropriate for Our children from our perspective. And if we're modeling good behaviour with this, then I guess we're starting to help them model behaviour as well in turn. I mean, just in general, from the research I've done, I have really resisted my children having anything on phones or computers while they're under five. That's just my own personal opinion based on the research. So again, in the book, I just say here's the research. I understand, (laughs) I understand when sometimes we need a bit of a babysitter, I'd still would probably prefer the TV if there was a babysitter necessary while mum and dad has got like an hour's work to do. But I understand, you know, that we live in a modern world and we all need to be connected. So I think it's just, look, read the research and then make up your own mind based on what you've got there. Because I understand the difficulties, you know, none of us are immune.
0: Yeah. And I think with the phones, you know, I think about this quite a lot as well. I think it's like anything that's not black and white, is it? I think if you are on your phone constantly in front of your children, that repeated message, as you say, children are in that ego state. So what is done around them or to them they think is about them, essentially. I think if that's constant, there is that risk that your child could think, I'm not enough, there's something wrong with me. But I think that's probably quite rare, actually, that a parent is constantly on their phone with their child. I think, as you say, it's thinking about what's right for you and bringing that awareness to it I'm definitely on my phone a little bit in front of my girls I'm also not on it at huge chunks of the day and I think it's bringing that that you do in the book that compassion and understanding of modern life particularly with the pandemic you know so much of us could only connect
1: yeah well that's it I think that I mean I spoke to Gabor and we were chatting and he just said "Kate, you've just got to remember we were talking about home working and he just said when you're doing that, you know, we're on a live, you know, interview or whatever, and then our children are looking at us and we're doing that to them. He said, just think about what that is telling them. So as you say, I think talking in the pandemic is that whereas before that would have been a lot rarer, when we're home working, that's what we're being asked to do is do that a lot to our children, when children were at home. So as you say, it is important to stress, you know, it's to assess how much and the messages that we're sending. And actually, we try to put ourselves sort of say, right, right, everything is down, because it is so easy. I'm, you know, I pick, you know, pick it always at bars. I'm just going to have a look at it. My children will now say, mummy, off the phone, which is good. And I'm like, right, good, tell me, because sometimes we're not as aware of how much we're on it as we might be.
0: Well, Gabor said, not to me, in another interview I heard him do. He is seriously concerned about phone use for parents, and he thinks actually it could have, in the future, you know, really catastrophic consequences he's quite hard line on it which was quite scary for me to hear as a parent actually because as you say they are addictive they're designed to be Mm. addictive I actually have to put my phone in another room now for large chunks of the day when I'm with the girls because if if it's near me I'm going to be honest with you I'm checking it so I always ask the same question at the end which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the
1: world what would that one gift be and why? Such a good question isn't it? I would give them the gift of time. I would give them the gift of time so that we could take more time for ourselves, which would help with our regulation, and time just to be with our children. I think we are robbed in the modern world so much of time And it's kind of nobody's fault. It's evolved that way. And I would like to claw some of it back for us and that we could all live in some great big commune and just, I talk in the book about living in that, you know, it takes a village. So I think time and time together all of us together to just give each other a hug and say do you know what you're doing a really bloody good job and it is really bloody hard but it's a lot easier when we're doing it together so time and togetherness I think would be my two slipping no that's beautiful <laughs> thank you
0: So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes, well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step by step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.